This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Rob Connybeer. Welcome back to Launchpad on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Connybeer. I'm a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. If you're listening to the show right now and you have any comments or questions, give us a call. The lines are open. Our number here is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. I'm thrilled to welcome my next guest, J.R. Hildebrand. He is a professional IndyCar driver who also works with self-driving cars. There's an irony there. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. Of course. Yeah, happy to be here, man. So you turned down your acceptance to MIT to pursue a career as a professional race car driver. Yes. Um, I, I always say I'm not really sure what, what, that, what that says about my intelligence level, but uh, thankfully for the sanity of my high school counselors and parents and, and everybody else, it's, uh, it's worked out pretty well so far. Yeah. So maybe talk about that a little bit, how you've actually stayed active with academia yeah. while racing. How, how does one do that? You know, I think it was just uh, motorsports, a lot like other professional sports. It's a sort of volatile business. It's, it's really all over the place. There's uh, some of it you can control, some of it you can't. So, um, you know, I've gone through some ups and downs in my career, but throughout all of that, um, I've, I've just always maintained a, a really high degree of interest in what's going on in other places and in, in business and in the world and uh, in society. And, uh, you know, that, that comes from that really sort of orbits around a, an interest in math and science and engineering. So um, I've been really fortunate to be able to, you know, motorsports is a engineering heavy sport. So there's, there's certainly some carry over there that, um, you know, allows me an opportunity to um, get involved in different spaces but um, I've also just you know kind of taken a little bit of the initiative to fill my spare time with learning more about what's going on and um, you know have I got the opportunity a couple of years ago to start working with Colora- Stanford. And were you from Colorado? Originally from the Bay Area here. Originally from yeah. the Bay Area. So I grew up in Marin, okay. uh, went to Redwood High, the whole program. Um, live in Boulder now so Slowly working my way back west from being in the Midwest. Hey, what was for a the while. very first thing you raced? Go karts. Um, okay. Yeah, race go karts. Was it at Sonoma Raceway? The first time I drove a go kart was not up here, but I started racing once they opened the go kart track up at at Sears Point. So that was sort of 2002. And what was the very first go kart you raced? First go kart I raced was actually in uh, Davis, California. Um, okay. A little bit. I was. I think I was 10. First time I like actually got in a. Were you proper asking your go-kart? parents? You're like, I want to, I want to race a kart. I want to race a you know, kart. You know, my dad. Did your dad put you in it? No, it was, it was a little bit. Well, so I'll put it this way. My dad, uh, my dad had vintage race cars, still does, but had vintage race cars when I was a kid. So he was a CPA here at PwC in the city. Um, racing was just a, a hobby for him. He was a gearhead from when he was a little kid, um, and so. And would you know, he take it up to Sears Point? Yeah, so I went to races with him. Um, growing up here in, in the Bay Area, we had season passes at Sears Point and at Laguna. We saw NASCAR races and IndyCar and drag races and AMA, Superbike, all that kind of stuff. Um, the, the vintage racing thing is actually really cool because you, you sort of get a history lesson in everything that's gone on in racing over the years. You see all these different eras of design and, and engineering and all this kind of stuff. So that was... I think a, a really cool part of growing up around it. Um, 
you know, but for me, it really started, it sounds so commonplace now to say that I started out by racing in, like, video games, but... But you did? You know, back in the 90s, like, you're talking about real hardcore computer simulators. Did you ever play, like, pole yeah. position? Oh, well, the stand-up so Atari I pole position? Or was that before it. your it's time? A little, a little a more little retro too. than, okay. you know, my upbringing, but... Okay. Um, I was really into computer games, like playing, you know, racing simulator computer games. So Did you have a little steering wheel? Yeah, like I had I had the whole whole setup. Was this in the basement of Marin then? Yeah, this was like in, you know, the the back room, the office room at the house or whatever. Okay. What um, kind of computer was it? Set the scene. I don't know. It was like a Compaq, I think. Okay. I think it was back in the Compaq days. Um, but yeah, I had a little, you know, tra- like a you know, like a tray that you would use if you were going to set up and have dinner in front of the TV or something. Like I had one of those with the, you know, steering wheel jammed onto it. And this is all, I mean, it's funny looking back at it now. I, sh- I should try to dig all this do stuff up. Do you have pictures of it? I'm sure okay. I do. But uh, yeah, I just played, played NASCAR games. You know, so basically it was all, I was really familiar with just the ins and outs of. What's a racing line? Yeah, like the general essence of how do you get around a racetrack, how do you put together a lap, and and all that kind of stuff. Um, so when I got a chance, like my dad, I played baseball really competitively for a long time. I wasn't really, I wasn't pushed into driving a go kart or or racing, but you know, it's something we obviously both shared as a. Um, so d- you know, so passion, did your dad so. come home one day? And say, hey, would you like to go up to Davis <laughs> and try a cart? I don't actually Something I don't like really that. remember how it all unfolded, like, came together. But yeah, we both went up there. He drove. He, we both did it together. Yeah. Um, and I'm guessing you weighed a little less. So I you might have been faster right away. Yeah. Okay. So uh, it was fun. So we did that a couple of times, like a you know a year or two apart. We I did it in Davis once, and then we went down to Ventura down in Southern California, the Jim Hall Karting School down there. Um, was always really fast. Loved it. Was in, enjoyed it. Um, but there just wasn't it wasn't really that accessible up here. I think that's one of the weird things or one of the interesting things that separates motorsports from pretty much anything else. Like certainly from other stick and ball sports is you really have to be able to get into it. The initial barrier to entry has a lot more obstacles, uh, both from a financial perspective and, um, you know, just finding somewhere to do it. So they opened the go-kart track up here. They had a great set of uh, sort of classes and school-based arrive-and-drive stuff. So that and was... And that's what you got into? That's when I really started racing, yeah. Ah, okay. And then what was the next step after the karting? So I... You know, this sounds silly to a lot of people, but I didn't really start racing go-karts until I was 14. Like, it didn't start to become more of a, you know, I'm in a championship and racing uh, more full-time at that point, which sounds young, but is it's actually pretty late in the game for a, from a go-karting perspective. I mean, lots of the guys that I race against now that are my age, I started when they were six, seven, eight years old, you know, when I was playing t-ball or, yeah. you know, whatever else. So, um I made the transition pretty quickly from go-karts to cars. Okay. Which, so I sort of caught up with everybody that was my age at that point. So I transitioned into a small open-wheel car at 16. Um, by And this is also at Sonoma? This is all up, at, you know, at that time, the Jim Russell Racing School was in place there. And they sort of had, I was sort of the poster child for the ladder system that they had going from you know, a, a karting school to their karting arrive and drive series to racing in a, you know, full-blown kind of shifter cart championship during the year, my second year in go-karts. I went through what they had a graduate runoff. So they had this whole kind of scholarship program that if you were the best guy 
at each one of these levels, the the school system that was there through Jim Russell would basically pay for you to move along. And this is all at that racetrack. All at the same time. So for people that aren't familiar with the Bay Area, it's actually very accessible. It's only a half-hour drive with no traffic from San Francisco. Yeah. And it's a track that's a classic road track with a lot of elevation change. It's a really awesome facility. Um, They've done a great job. They've got all kinds of different programs up there. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we raced, I raced there in the IndyCar at the end of the year last year. So they've, it, it, the thing that's cool about being up at Sonoma is they, they kind of have something for everybody, uh, from super amateur, you, know, you can bring your streetcar up there and find a track day to get out on track, um, you know, to the highest levels in the sport in North America. So it's, it's also, as you mentioned, a really challenging circuit all by itself. So I think despite the fact that I didn't have a lot of variety. And tr- when I was racing go-karts, you're bouncing around, you're racing at different places in Northern California. You know, my first year in a full-size car was just at Sears Point. Um, but you know, they've got a bunch of different layouts, and, and you really have to learn all different... T- you might as well be learning a bunch of different circuits because every corner is totally different. You're turning you're all with, the time. Yeah, you're, de- you're dealing with... I mean, it's on the IndyCar schedule, it's like the hardest place to get right, you know? So... Um, did that for a year in with still within the Russell system won the championship in the car in like a full size car and are you in high school at this yeah point? I was 16 so are I you was, missing uh, a fair number of classes not, or how does that work at this point not yet so you I didn't was still, have to travel as yeah I wasn't traveling that much then the next year uh, I was a I was a junior um, the following year when I was 17 started racing in you know sort of a lower level uh, semi pro you know, uh, open wheel championship called Formula Ford 2000. So it was the it was the Pacific version of the championship at that point. So it was just up and down the West Coast. But then you're starting to travel a lot. You're starting to have test days in the middle of the week. You're starting to, you got to be in Phoenix or you got to be up in Portland or whatever on a for Friday practice early in the morning. So you're out of school end of the day Wednesday, flying up there, getting ready, doing setup, doing all that kind of stuff. Maybe not getting back till Tuesday. Um, so that's where it started to become more of a real thing that how you know, does that discussion work stuff. with your dad or your mom in that time frame are, are they encouraging it are you kind of asking or you know i was are they kind of wondering you know they may not say it to you yeah. but is jr fast enough is he <laughs> good enough is it worth taking off time from high school how does that conversation unfold i think that i was fortunate not to end up in a position where that was like a really um, you know, kind of embattled discussion. So, and is and it I just because you were that, so fast? That or? sort of. I think that was a that was a product of a couple of things. One, I was able to maintain my, you know, grades and education the way that it was going. So that, at least on certainly on paper, was not helps. like suffering from mm-hmm. have from kind of like doing all of this stuff. I had been playing baseball really competitively and sort of bailed on that to focus on the racing thing. So it was a little bit of a replacement sort of deal in terms of you know total just time spent doing something extracurricular um and then on the racing side you know frankly like i was really i felt like from the beginning i was very aware of the fact that this is sort of a low odds situation and that to begin with yeah and that i didn't i didn't want to be leaning on my parents or or anybody else in particular really to be funding this whole thing i mean that's that's i mean you get into just doing formula ford 2000 which is like not on tv it's not there's no 
for all intents and purposes, there's no commercial value to it whatsoever. You know, it costs, you know, 150, 200 grand just to go do that. I mean, you're talking about kind of farm league, um, you know, sort of stuff. So the commitment, I was lucky to have a lot of help. I was one of a few young American guys at the time that was coming up through the open wheel ladder, so that that definitely helped my cause. So it was kind of an equal opportunity thing at the time, so uh, to speak. Okay. And so, you know, it just, it it all ended up, we didn't really get to any specific juncture that it was like, we need to start thinking hard about whether this is the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Cuddybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with J.R. Hildebrand, who is a professional driver in the IndyCar League and is also quite involved with the autonomous vehicle efforts of many manufacturers out in the Bay Area right now. So moving on to applying to college, applying to MIT, how many schools did you apply to? I applied to four UCs. Um, I was lucky to be, uh, I like killed it on my PSAT, so I was a National Merit Scholar, which helped a lot. Oh um, boy, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I applied to four UCs, uh, Berkeley, UCLA, I think uh, Davis and UCSD maybe, and then uh, MIT and Stanford. And uh, my, really, my I, I always said that I, I would have gone to either Berkeley or UCLA, assuming that I was going to get in. Um, but I... I knew that the sort of requirements or the the ability to skip a year or you know do some sort of deferral situation was going to be really tricky, um, and so knowing that maybe I'd have a little bit more flexibility applying to private schools, applied to MIT and and Stanford. Um, once I went out and like visited them, it was like, man, these are actually this would be these are a awesome pretty killer opportunity. Yeah. 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 Um, what and type so, of engineering were you interested in? Yeah, I just applied in mechanical engineering, and then my backup was aerospace. Um, I really liked aerospace just from the perspective that um, it was a little bit more theoretical is the wrong word, but a little bit uh, a little bit less just like tangible. You know, I liked I liked the kind of problem solving, like aerodynamic H- stuff. How many and, people and like that. that race have engineering degrees or have actually been in it? Is it a you know, high r- number or a small really number? For, you know, it's, it's an engineering intensive business, so you have a lot of, you're working with a lot of engineers, but from the driver's perspective, you know, and I think in a lot of situations similar to mine, just because you, it's such a young man's game, you have to start really early on. You just sort of just don't I mean, the only reason just I don't didn't have go was just because you don't really have the time. Particularly, like, that's a really critical juncture when you're not quite at the top level to be doing just everything you got to do to get there. And and you're a lot of times getting phone calls at the last minute. You got to be somewhere. You got to do something else. You got to be able to take advantage of all of those things. So, um, you know, very few is the, is the answer, um, which I think in some ways is guys get a little bit of a bad rap for not having that just, you know, on paper educational background, but you'd be really surprised at the level of intellect of the average guy, you know, just because of because of how intensive the whole thing is. Well, what is know? when you look at one of the races and you look at qualifying from the top of the field to the bottom of the field, what's a typical lap time? Just pick a track and how much time separates the people that are on at the top of the pack from the bottom. Yeah, I mean, you're usually talking, for us in the IndyCar Series, average, you know, road course, Long Beach Grand Prix, you know, whatever. Um, I mean, you're talking the difference between 
being in the top five and being outside the top 15 is like half a second or less usually. So it is just, I mean, you're and splitting And this is hairs. spending, what, two minutes getting around the track? And yeah. it's half minute, a second. Minute, it's a minute and a half. So know. to do that, and this is one of the things that's always surprised me about motorsports, is you actually have to understand how the car is set up yeah. and how it's working and then feed that back to the engineers that are working on the car. Yeah, I mean, once you, particularly in today's like really heavily data-driven sort of version of motorsports, um, you know, there there's not a lot that you, you know, the drivers are all capable of figuring out kind of like what the best ways to, you know, so everybody's really honed in on kind to of get like to that last basically doing the same thing. Like it, it takes a highly trained eye to tell the difference between what guys are doing. Like, and it's, and it's not because we've all grown up doing things the same way or we all have exactly the same style. It's because everybody's become really good at optimizing for what is actually just the best way to get around. Um, and then the teams are all doing the same thing. And so oftentimes there's at least as much to gain in being able to make the car a little bit better as there is in having to figure out this more subjective version of how do how do we make a little bit of extra time up around the track you know sometimes you find it sometimes you don't if you can find it in the car it's just there for the rest of the weekend you know so that becomes a big part of the process and and as such the driver has to really be able to understand not only just the dynamic of what's going on with the car on track, but then how to help the engineers identify that, correlate your subjective feelings of what the car is doing to something tactile in the data. I mean, the cars, you know, they'll generate a gigabyte of data every couple of laps, and it's like an incredible amount of information. Holy cow, what are they recording when they go around the track? I mean, everything. I mean, you're... you're everything about about what the driver's doing, driver input, steering, throttle, you know, all that kind of stuff. Those are the things that are, like, easy to visually display, but you've got um, shock displacement histograms up the wazoo. Like, everything on the car basically has a... If you can imagine it having a sensor on it, it has a sensor on it. Um, And so, really, like, it becomes a little bit of a, a task... In the heat of the moment, to particularly like in the IndyCar series, I even compare what what we do to Formula One. You know, Formula One teams have a hundred guys back in, you know, b- back in England. Like it's got to be hard to coordinate that many people doing all that stuff to work on a single car for sure. But you know, you have uh, you have the manpower to work out all of the little details of what's going on. For us, you've got five or six dudes at the track. You got way more information there than you could possibly sort through in the amount of time you have. So that communication between driver and engineer to like zoom in on what's actually really important to figure out how to make the car a little bit better in the next like five minutes worth of practice, that becomes a super critical part of just the whole process. So as you went from go-karts to the Russell Racing Ladder to IndyCar, at what point did you realize wow there's a lot more that's involved here with car setup and data and the tech yeah than i thought was there a moment where you said holy crap this is different than what i thought it would be i think a you know the initial moment where that happened was just going from being in the russell system even in the even a full-size car to where there's like no data like we were not looking at anything it was just go you had lap time that was it 
Like you had no. Dash, they just gave handed you, no, you a car. You, you you there was like a printout at the end of the session. Like it was very old school from that perspective. Um, oh, because you didn't even see the lap times while you were going around. Yeah, like we had this. That's whole, hard to imagine. We had this whole system where like because there was a t- there was timing and scoring inside the you know pi- the tower or whatever, so you could get somebody in the tower and they would have like you know fla- oh a number with your cards that they would like you know hold up inside the tower and then there would be somebody else out on pit lane that would be like okay like you got to shuffle through and figure out he's fifth right now we'll put him up the because now it's know? like a video game inside the car you oh, see yeah, exactly I mean, what there's a you've got a full digital transponder you, yeah i mean you could be looking predictive at, you know, looking at tire pressures while you're driving around if you want to so just that transition from from that environment to uh, low level sort of semi-pro you're starting to look at a lot of data right away. And in essence, from there, it was just sort of a gradual increase. So that was a that was a big step, just getting used to looking at any kind of data. Um, And then from there, it was a little bit more, you know, more linear, I guess, in terms of how much more you looked at it and invested. And I think I've even been the, the second, you know, sort of inflection point was really once I got to the IndyCar series, over the time that I've been in the IndyCar series, just over the last eight years, seeing how much more data we are accumulating now and how much more important it is to be able to look through that and be able to really understand what it's, what you're looking at and what you're doing, uh, that's, that's a big part of what is currently differentiating big, successful teams from you know those who are having a more difficult time consistently being good. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Connybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now talking to J.R. Hildebrand, who is a professional IndyCar driver who also works with self-driving cars and an advocate for self-driving cars and the future of transportation. So you were named Rookie of the Year in 2011, Mm -hmm. and you talked a bit about making the shift, knowing what the the odds were. How did that feel? Yeah, it was, I mean, it's a huge, you know, we in in the IndyCar series, a lot like, you know, I, I liken it to playing baseball. Like we have a AAA category called Indy Lights. So you race along with the IndyCar series. You go to all the same events, all that kind of stuff. Um, sort of like a 7 eight scale IndyCar, basically. <laughs> um, so I, I won that championship in 2009. And then um, basically like, ended up sort of sitting out a year going coming out of my Indy Lights championship um there was no you know there's 25 28 full-time rides the IndyCar series none of them opened up in that off season um I liked to consider what myself What do you do during that time frame? Free agent. I really just meant that I was unemployed for a year so anybody who's out there listening you're welcome to use that um you know in your in your in your lives but um I was just looking for stuff to kind of stay busy, basically. So I went and did the 12 hours of Sebring you know, endurance sports car race. Um, I did the Long Beach Grand Prix in a in the IMSA championship, which so sort of race bounced around to some other series. I didn't want to go and do Indy Lights again, just because I felt like really the only thing that could happen there you is something it. goes right. sideways and you don't win, and then maybe you kind of lose the momentum in the whole thing. And then partway through that season, after the Indianapolis 500 in 2010 which was the next year um guy got hurt and i got called up basically so i filled in uh made my indycar debut filling in for a guy that was injured that year for a couple of races oh wow and then um which included um racing here in 
at Sonoma. So my second IndyCar race was at the end of the season here. At, so here at, at least Sonoma, you had some local knowledge cool. on an early yeah. race. We like popped into the top 10 in one of the practice sessions. and was like, okay, like I can do this. I can compete. This is, this okay. Is, this is like the real deal. Um, and then got hired, ha- kind of had to, it doesn't happen that often anymore, but really had to debut for my first, or had to, uh, do a job audition for my first full-time ride in the series. So, uh, Panther Racing, which was sponsored by the National Guard. Um, they had a driver that was, they were splitting ways with their driver at the time. And uh, it was between me and a couple other guys, a couple of veterans that were in the series. Do you so all show up at the same test day or do they have up. successive days? So we weren't in the same place at the same time. But um, yeah, we had to go to Phoenix International Raceway. Um, I had never been there in anything before. It's a short oval track, really difficult little kind of bullring you know, I mean, it's a one-mile oval that you're averaging like 185 miles an hour around or something. So it's super tight. You know, um, you know, high G loading, all this kind of stuff. That's crazy. So I was there for two days, and um, you know, walking. And when away. you say addition, are they looking for lap times, or are they looking for I ability to work with you? It's just the and kind of holistic picture of it. You know, how quickly, as a rookie, also, I think there's probably some different criteria than there is for a veteran, but. You know, I've, I've learned over the course of being in a couple of these situations and different deals, a lot of what, you know, I think teams are looking for is just, do you seem like you've, you know, got your stuff together, really? Like, are is this overwhelming? Is this, does he seem comfortable doing this? Um, when you get into kind of higher risk situations, if we're doing qualifying simula- simulations, if we're doing long runs and the tires are degrading really heavily at the end of the run how do you deal with that what's your sort of attitude are you starting to like complete are the, are the rails falling off yeah. or do you seem like you're you know you've kind of you're under control and um so there's know. a maturity test it sounds like not just for sure. you fast, think, especially maturity for young test. guys coming in that's that's probably the, i think that's the hardest thing to know about a driver until you actually got him in your car with your team did you get with coaching on how to handle this were there people that would say here's what they're likely to be looking for at this audition you know i i was i've been lucky to have you know people that i can lean on you know other drivers ex-drivers in those situations um i you know frankly like i also just i've always looked forward to the challenge of that type of scenario you know so um i've i've always some of my like some of when I imagine myself at my best has been in situations like that when you're just ultra focused on the task at hand because you know you got to go deliver. Um, and so, you know, that was one of those situations and it worked really well with the team and, um, you know, was having fun on, on my side of things, which was, which was cool and um, ended up with the game. And became a rookie of the year. Yeah, the next yeah. year went into my rookie season. So we need to take a short break here in a moment. Uh, Stay with us. When we're back, I'll continue my conversation with J.R. Hildebrand. We're going to move from racing to the future of transportation and the things that he's involved with there. I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Launchpad on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Conybeer. I'm a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. 
I'm here in the studio right now with J.R. Hildebrandt, a professional veteran IndyCar driver who also works with self-driving cars. So, J.R., moving from the racing that we were talking about, would love to hear about your foundation, the J.R. Hildebrand Foundation Initiative, and could you share what it what it is and yeah. what you're up to with it? So, you know, we talked a little bit about just my you know, a lot of my interests outside of motorsports and, and initially in motorsports um, are around sort of the engineering and the technology that's involved. Um, so I started a education initiative, uh, you know, 501c3 a few years ago to, to try to translate that into something that could be meaningful for kids in school. Like the, that's the, that's the very sort of like 10,000 foot view of it. But, you know, I, I had the unique opportunity to be racing myself and seeing a lot of this data and seeing these things that you know happen in the world of motorsports real time live like in something super interesting that's going on out in the world um that you know i I think a lot of people think about there being sort of a downfall in terms of you know young kids or or kids in in even in high school um, at those later stages not really seeing where the light at the end of the tunnel is in engineering fields or or in math and science i think an equally great problem uh, that has a lot to do with that or that contributes to that in a big way is just that there's you know there's there's very little content that kids are looking at that are you know on a day-to-day basis in school that's like relevant to anything that's interesting in real life um, you know, in, in math and science fields. And so this foundation is really aimed at taking the data, taking the things that we're doing at the track and converting that, translating it into uh, lesson planning programming that, you know, fits. We've done a bunch of work down in L.A. and inner city public schools in L.A. What's a great example of this? So yeah, I mean, do you have so people you from, from the foundation like show up somewhere and talk about it? or it's? I mean, it's it's kind of everything from, yeah, we can go in and just chat with you know do kind of appearances and show up and chat about sort of what are some things that are going on and relay the the uh you know impact of those things that the kids are learning in class to what's going on in the real world i mean it it really started and and has developed to be something that's much more in depth than that um, in the form of you know creating full-on like week or two long lesson plans that fit into existing curriculums um, taking, you know, in essence, we take the template of what students are currently learning, say, in like a ninth grade level physics class. And what have you maybe like taken and replaced with what? Yeah. So we've uh, we took like a uh, in in physics, kids learn about engine problems. So you're talking about um, you have energy that comes into an engine in the form of a fuel. What happens in the engine? What amount of that is lost? to, you know, waste, basically heat waste, and then you end up with, you know, the other piece of it is your power output. Um, so this is just sort of a basic diagram that kids That are they may have never looked at before, well, or that they already yeah, did. Yeah, well, that they'll, they'll be looking at okay. one way or another as a yeah. part of their, you know, curriculum. And so instead of that being about, like, a potato gun or something, we take it out, we input actual real data from... Engines. You know... IndyCar engines, what is the actual true amount of, you know, energy that is used towards, used out of our fuel, you know, our whatever, E85 ethanol that goes towards power in the car? What is the amount that goes towards, um, you know, heat waste? What are their percentages? What are the efficiencies? All that kind of stuff. So, you know, in essence, we're, we're, we're just trying to bring the real world into the classroom in a way that, 
doesn't you know what the really interesting thing about it's fun and it's engaging it's something that and that for the helps for think. teachers and administrators and people like that it actually just fits into the existing curriculum standards you know a lot of the stuff that's going on in education sort of is dependent upon like the system of education changing um and the fact of the matter is that's just not going to happen you know overnight so that's been a really you know sort of cool and and uh you know meaningful thing to be working on on the side so you've been involved with some other education initiatives, I believe, and also lecturing at Stanford. Yeah. How yeah. did you get involved with lecturing at Stanford? Yeah, so my involvement at Stanford really started, it, it, I guess I would say it's more in the form of sort of consulting, but the it really started, well, I, got, I got asked by Road & Track magazine to come out. Um, Audi of Europe was bringing their self-piloted RS7 uh, to Sonoma Raceway. And so Road and Track wanted a local guy, local pro. Were you friends with the editor there or I, one I, of the writers? It was writers? totally out of the blue. Oh, actually, really? Yeah. So is it an so email they, that showed they, up or yeah, was I it a text email, message? No, I got or? an email that they, they knew that they knew me from, you know, I was racing full-time in the IndyCar series. Um, they knew that I was from the Bay Area. I'd grown up around here and was, like, really familiar with the track. Um and so they just said, hey, you know, we need somebody. So you're probably not going to destroy our car. We need somebody to be, like, the man in the man versus machine battle here. Like, we need a— Oh, you were the man. You were yeah, Casey. So I, okay. I was, I was there to provide the professional human lap time to compare <laughs> Audi's, you know, <laughs> autonomous vehicle against. No pressure there. And uh, so the—it's it's actually, like, a great story all by itself, but the— the short of how kind of the whole thing worked out with Stanford is that Stanford, you know, at that time and still now is running sort of a parallel program of their own doing the same thing. So developing autonomous vehicle programming um, with the, you know, so the programming direction is to get a car to run around the racetrack as quickly as possible with the intention of autonomously. Yeah, autonomously. Okay. Um, you know, there being sort of research and learnings that come out of that that can tell us about how vehicles operate in high-risk situations, you know, if, when they need to be able to operate at their absolute physical limits. Um, and so, you know, I showed up, didn't really know what to expect, honestly. I mean, and you I, said this was an Audi RS7? RS, so it's like fast, it's yeah. legit, super legit. Yeah. Um, you know, Michelin Pilot Sports. Like yeah, the twin whole, turbo V8, the whole right? Nine yards, okay. Yeah. All right. Carbon ceramic brakes. Um, I didn't really, you know... Well, I don't know. I didn't. I guess I sort of underestimated it going in. I just didn't really have any expectation of what I was getting myself into. It's like, oh, whatever. This can't be that good. And uh, get out there, and we're all kind of like shooting the breeze. And they roll the car out on the tracks. So they have a drive. One of the Audi engineers drives it out on the track, and then puts it in autonomous mode. And it does like a standing start from 50 yards before the start finish line, and then <laughs> it'll start. You know, start okay. a flying lap after okay. a standing start. Yeah. We're all kind of like, whatever. And uh, just, you know, it's like right around the corner in the pit lane, the car is out on the track. And so it's like just kind of within this weird earshot. And are the road and track people taking pictures through all this? They're just... They uh, want you to the, pose. At this point, we were just like... Is this even going to work? Super casual. Okay. Like, you know, not not even... We're not even into our day yet. Like, the car has to go set its lap time, and then we'll sort of start to get into the whole thing from there. And uh, we just hear the thing like... You know, they they obviously tr you can hear it changing modes and doing all this kind of stuff like the engines kind of changing its RPM and blah 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 blah. It's getting it before it launches. Yeah. Okay. And all of a sudden it's like 
and it just like takes off like a bat like four wheel burnout. Yeah. In autonomous mode. And this is uh, at the, the start line. finish line. Yeah. So okay. it blasts through the start finish line. Goes up the hill like you can hear it like tired. And it's a steep first hill at Sonoma Race going up the yeah. hill. And so sudden like now we're kind of like taking this thing really seriously all of a sudden you know yeah. kind of like man like I've never driven this car around this track before like do how many laps do I get to like get up to speed you know in this vehicle um, yeah. But so the next thing that happened, which actually is is sort of where the Stanford conversation starts, is it came in so it ripped off a lap. Okay. Pretty respectable lap. Was it less than two minutes? Uh, it was. It was just over two minutes. Okay. Um, which is like, yeah, it's almost as fast as a Miata. Pretty decent. Um, <laughs> and so he co- he comes around and uh, and so then before I they actually they had just a stock RS7 that I was going to drive, so actually a different physical car. Uh, but before I got out and did my laps, um, I got in as a passenger in the autonomous car. So was there a safety driver? So they had a safety driver, okay. which even at this point, at that point, Still I was like, Still kind of terrifying. You know, whatever. Like, I would rather have the car try to sort itself out than, like, have us get into some totally... And this is just with, like, know, a Road 3-point seatbelt, right? Oh, yeah. You this didn't have all, a racing yeah, harness no, no, no. and I mean, a racing seat. We had helmets seat. on, I think. Okay. But, um, yeah, no, there was nothing special so, about... So you get in the right-hand seat. Get in the right seat. Um thing takes off and it was super impressive uh it was it what it what immediately struck me was just how how willing it was to go to its limits basically like straight line braking you know full lateral cornering in the middle of the corner straight line acceleration but that you know after a couple laps it was just really interesting because not only could i sort of tell i could you can start to work backwards of like how it was doing whatever it's doing as a race car driver. You're, you're constantly kind of introspective about how you're putting together your lap. What am I doing? What's my sort of philosophy here for different corners? You're having to constantly sort of check the results of your actual actions and the data against what you think is the best way to get around. So you're, you become almost like your own driver coach in that sense. And uh, so it was natural for me to get in this thing and just sort of, coach it along the same way like what is it doing what would i tell it to do differently here you know Um, did you give feedback to the engineers and so when i got out you know it was actually really interesting just in the car that if you had put me in a car with a person that was driving like that i would have been scared since like i'm a lousy passenger anyway probably but i would have thought like holy you know what like there's no way that I would just on my first lap out break that deep into turn seven. You know, like if a person had done that, I would be thinking like we're going to miss the corner by a bunch right now. But after a couple of corners of understanding that it that's just how it works and it makes it through the corner and all that kind of stuff, you could tell that it was sort of driven by a computer. But in some sense, it was sort of comforting that you could know what it was doing when it was doing it. Um, and so I got out of the car and sort of just rift on how i thought it was putting its lap together i kind of thought that i thought it was basically just based on gps and that it wasn't really it was kind of choppy in these transitions so i didn't think that it was you know doing x y and z really there and i didn't think that it really understood its own weight transfer that much and you know so i was just kind of spitballing yeah and uh the stanford guys chris gerties who runs the program uh the revs program up at stanford was there and uh he sort of just said well we obviously like you just reverse engineered like the programming for the car after one lap basically like 
And so at that point, we started having a conversation about how we might be able to work together and, and how human feedback uh, might fit into the development. So you didn't of know it, but you were having another vehicles. addition. Yeah, kind of in, in a weird way. So um, I ended up being, you know, prospectively faster than Audi's car at that program. But now the the car that I work with at Stanford doing the same thing. I would imagine it's collapsing together, though. It's man, it is like amazingly, amazingly good. The work that those kids are doing is like off the charts. So it's it's uh you know we're the the Shelly, the this aut autonomous Audi TTS um, that I've worked with for a couple of years now with the Revs program. It's all graduate students. Um, you know, I mean, it's within at Thunder Hill. It's a two minute and fifteen second lap or something. It's within you know second and a half. The RS seven, the Audi's uh, Audi's TTS. Okay, of my lap time. So it's damn close. So if you're tuning in, I'm Rob Cunningham, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with J.R. Hildebrand, who is a professional and a veteran IndyCar driver who also works with self-driving cars. So was that your very first exposure to a self-driving car, an autonomous vehicle? Yeah, personal exposure, like being around one, being in one, you know, really kind of grasping the essence of kind of where the development track was and how the programming is being put together and, and all that kind of stuff for sure. Yeah, so so what is going on in autonomous vehicles right now? You have some perspective. You've been around it for a while from these early demonstrations yeah. in Sonoma. Like, what's your perspective on where it's going, how fast it's coming? You know, I, so I, I guess I would say, I think like predicting really at what point it is mature is a really difficult thing to do at this point. You know, and, and I think that's, you, you recognize that from the fact that the predictions are all over the place, depending on who you talk to. Um, you know, I guess I would say, I think what's, what's happening right now is this race, this aggressive race to be, uh, you know, at the top of the heap of the ride-hailing companies. I mean, that's really, you know, certainly in the public eye and, and in terms oh, of... Oh, whether it's Uber or Where Lyft the investment is happening, like, that's, that's like, a significant part of the push. And that, you know, as, as can be seen in, you know, this recent incident with the Uber in Tempe, Arizona, um, you know, there's a lot of... There's a lot of difficulty in the situation. And I think... For me, what it comes down to, the two most interesting... This is the recent incident yeah. where there was a pedestrian, uh, pedestrian that was killed. killed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Just earlier t this afternoon, the video from inside the Uber came out. I mean, and it's Oh, they like shared it? They shared it, yeah. Okay. Uh, what did it look like? Arizona I haven't PD, seen it yeah, yet. They, uh, I mean, to be honest with you, it's kind of shocking to look at it. Um, you know, I mean, the given... You know, the Ubers, they've got LiDAR, they've got all this stuff. Like, it should be... Like, the fact that it's at night really shouldn't matter... I mean, it was as if it had no idea that there was a person there. And, wow. like, it should have been. It's, like, pretty obvious. Um, you know, the, the safety driver situation, I think, is just flawed. The way that, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work that I've seen going on in, 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 you know, academic institutes like Stanford is basically kind of showing, you know, people sort of think, oh, we got a safety driver in the car. So it's a hard job. You should be Don't able you to account for all this stuff. I mean, there's... That's got to be hard to be a safety driver. The research driver. is showing that it is actually incredibly difficult just to stay alert. Like, even if you're trying to stay alert when the car is driving itself. I mean, we... The distinction for the parameters and the guidelines for what you're supposed to be doing at these different levels, call, whether it be... Is it easier if you're trying to train your kid or your, you know... 
sister to drive. Yeah, I then th- I think honestly, and it is. and watching them for mistakes as opposed to watching an autonomous robotic car for mistakes. You know, and it's just it's it's hard to stay totally alert like you'd have to pay me an insane amount of money to sit there in a car that in theory should be able to drive itself and for the most part does drive itself and just be there to pick up like the crazy little things that end up happening during the day i mean it's like trying to avoid a you know mosquito hitting the windshield you know um so i think that there are some flaws kind of in this whole system it's not really being it's not being regulated as a as an immature technology right now, it's being regulated as something that is going to very rapidly become mature enough to be as good as human drivers. And I just think the... But it's not entirely clear that that's the case yet. And there's just no... We have no benchmark for what that even is, you know? Oh, it is kind of unprecedented. Um, now that you mention it, I, I, the analogies are hard to find because so the logic that's required, the AI that's required for all the things that happen, it, it isn't like creating an autonomous airport train. Right. Where you're on the same rails very every time. There's, there's no very low variability on it. Yeah. So I think that so to me the two things that are really interesting um, in the larger conversation, if we're just talking about autonomous vehicles and their development, like take away sort of like larger systemic mobility. Um, one is it, it's my view at least that a lot of the programming architectures that are being developed right now are designed in such a way that they almost sort of need for the system within which they operate to be more simple than it currently is. Um, So that is to say, walking around downtown San Francisco, driving around here, it is a like massively complex situation. Like it is not a, in my view, it is not a knowable thing. Like you cannot super accurately simulate all of the things that happen for a car to deal with in downtown San Francisco. There's construction everywhere. There's pedestrians that walk out in front of you. There's jump bikes. There's scooters. There's, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. The The actual trend is for these types of environments to just become more complex with more of that type of stuff, right? As they become more dense, as there become more of these kind of novel ways for people to get around, y- you know, you'd have to regulate against all of that stuff all the all the weird behavior yeah. that it's trying to deal with um and that a self-driving car is trying to deal and with and so to me there's not a lot of there's not enough effort going towards creating programming architecture that is robust enough to actually handle that kind of stuff without preemptively knowing how it's all supposed to work basically um and th- well, that well can you just put together a an environment that feels like Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> I mean, like maybe simulating. People are doing those maybe simulating today. in Grand Theft Auto would be better be like than GTA. simulating in you know, uh, like made up you know Google Land. So, so what are some of the projects you're working on? I we had Riley Brennan, who I I know you know yeah. quite yeah. well from the Stanford things. You guys know each other pretty well. Any projects you guys are working on together? Yeah, I mean, there's. I, 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 I say this as a race car driver, you know, that's obviously been my primary thing for a while. For the last couple of years, I feel like I've been in like perpetual ultra stealth of like, you know, seeing the entry point, seeing some interesting entry points into, you know, the autonomous vehicle space, into the mobility space. So 
there's a lot of conversations that I've been having with people, and, and in essence, they do revolve around sort of this basic set of issues, which is that in the work that you know I've done with Stanford, we're comparing autonomous vehicles operating in a very controlled environment, but at a super high performance level against myself, a human, operating in that same super like high performance. Like on a racetrack. Yeah, in a racetrack, um, drifting, you know, doing these types of things that, you know, the car physically is at its kind of outer outer limits. They they are edge cases in and of themselves, basically. And that in doing that, one of the most interesting parts of that has just been understanding better what are the actual differences in my sort of human processing and adaptive capabilities. Like, what am I really good at and what am I maybe not so good at? And mm. what is the car really good at and what is it not so good at in these really extreme cases? You know, those are the types of things that when you're just having to, like, navigate your way through an empty, you know, suburban area, you're just not learning anything about what those fundamental differences are in terms of human behavior and capability and vehicle, you know, process behavior and capability what it's as it actually turns out you know shelly the autonomous audi tts and i are within like a percentage one percent of each other in terms of total performance but we're achieving those things in completely different ways oh that's interesting um, very different way so the car is the car is achieving its performance primarily based on the fact that it can know exactly where it is on the track. It can know exactly how much brake pressure it's applying. Like it can do all of these things and do it repetitively, like lap after lap after lap. Um, I'm really good at like adapting on the fly, basically. Like I don't know exactly where I am all the time. Like I don't. I'm not like thinking about how much brake pressure. But I'm you applying. probably know whether you're at the minimum rolling speed that you want to be at for a corner. Yeah, and, and so at least a little earlier. Yeah, you know, as uh, like our, you know, the way we work because of the way our brains work is that we sort of have this like fuzzy edge around everything that we are sort of considering. Like we we don't expect to be able to know these things exactly. And so it actually allows for us to more quickly and more adaptively like reorganize what we're focusing on, what it is that we're sort of, you know, intent to base our opinion of what's good, what's bad, what do I need to do next off of. Whereas the car is just like ultra data focused in terms of doing all of those so things. So are the engineers that you're working with incorporating some of the ideas that you're talking about, trying to incorporate a human's way of approaching the problem? Well, and so what we've started to do is is try to, what the students have started to do based on sort of seeing some of these differences is starting to experiment with, okay, well, what if we, what if instead of prioritizing just being on exactly the ideal line all the time, we sort of lessen the priority on that and because I don't care for me like when I'm going through turn two at Thunder Hill like I don't know if I'm even on exactly the line that I want to be on like at that point once I'm once the car is under load I am almost entirely just basing what I'm going to do next based on the current behavior of the car like is it understeering is it oversteering am I going too fast am I not going fast enough you're you just know, you're, working to get it up to the limit. You're just you're just working you're to get it right at the limit. Backwards off of am I at the limit or not, and do I have the car in an orientation that I want it to be in, basically? Um, so it's less position focused and more behavior focused. And so we've started to play around with that, like how do we program the car to you know quote unquote think that way, 
and that the the results have been super interesting. You know, I mean, you're well, starting one thing to that's see interesting is I'm only an amateur yeah. racer, very amateur racer. But the way in which the cars have been trained are the way in which instructors teach humans to drive on tracks for the first time. Yeah. Which is, here's the ideal line, here's what you should be doing. And then it's, as you get more and more advanced, it gets into the subtler pieces that you're talking about to get the last few seconds out of your lap time. And so I think the interesting thing about that is just that for, for an autonomous vehicle, that first piece of it is super easy. Because it can, like, you can just program it in. You know, like you can, and and I, I should qualify that by saying, you know, the cars that I work with at Stanford, I mean, they're building the lap on their own. They're, you're, it's nobody's telling them what the ideal line is. Like it's figuring out for itself what the ideal line is. Um, but then it's also overlaying this like set of processes on top of that to, you know, optimize for that at you know the maximum at the maximum level. And so. It does start to get into a. I think it's a. It's going to be a really interesting set of developments to say, what if we could do this in a way? Is there a way to do this where we can still benefit from the fact that it knows all these things, but it's built on an inf on an architecture that is a little bit more malleable to things changing and well, there being variability. Well, Jr. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been very insightful, Thanks, and it's been great talking to somebody who races but is also working with cars that try themselves. So, where can our listeners go to keep up with you and the work you're doing? I think probably the easiest thing to do is just keep up with me on social media um, at J.R. Hildebrand on, on all the different platforms. So uh, that's kind of my, ma my main jam and Great. always willing to have a chat there. Well, that does it for today's show. Thank you all for joining us. Be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111. I'd like to thank today's guest. We had Jeff Smith from Smuel and once again, J.R. Hildebrand. Thanks also to our producer, Brian Drew, assistant producer, Charlene Goto, our engineer, Dion Simpkins, and thank you for joining us on today's show. I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. You've been listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 111. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 